and welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and I'm really excited today to be joined by Leeds West MP and Shadow Chancellor of Duchy of Lancaster, Rachel Reeves. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. It's lovely to be here with you, Jerry. Yeah, it's really, really good to have you. And we've been trying to kind of set this up for oh, a few weeks now. So I'm really glad you find some time in your, I can imagine you're absolutely rammed busy at the moment, but I'm really glad you find some time in your diary. So thank you. Um, I mean, how busy have the last few weeks been for you? Let's jump straight in there. I imagine it's been very, very hectic. Well, yes, it, it has uh, for a whole variety of, of reasons. Mm. I mean, ever since the uh, coronavirus reared its head, the work of constituency MPs has, has gone through the roof in responding to the very difficult circumstances that many people find themselves in. And so my usual load of casework has, has gone through the roof, as you might um, imagine with people worried about their jobs, worried about Mm. their businesses, Mm. worried about their health, worried about uh, family members who have got underlying health conditions or in care homes, for example. And so we've been dealing with all of that, but obviously having to work in ways that we've never worked before. And so my uh, small team in in, in Leeds, based in the Bramley Shopping Centre, have over the last few months, like most other workers who are able to work from home, have been doing so. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's put obviously huge strains on, on what we're able to do. But I think we've responded really well. Um, we've been supporting people in whatever way we can. Been having lots of meetings on Zoom with GPs, with care homes, uh, with small businesses, with lots of different groups of, of people, head teachers, for example, uh, locally to try and help out we've started doing some visits again i've visited all of the uh, hubs in west leeds that have been doing emergency food delivery helping mm. the most vulnerable people in our communities so started to do that again but my usual sort of round of visits on thursdays and fridays to schools to community uh, centers a bit of knocking on doors etc we haven't been able to do that the last um, few months for obvious reasons so adapting as everybody is to new ways of working yeah and it's it's just it's just like that with you know just even recording this um this podcast today you know usually i'd um probably come and see you in your office in parliament would have a coffee and a catch up and kind of do that but we're uh, we're down the line today and i suppose you'll um your front bench role has kind of taken taken a uh, bit of a bit of a hit in the busyness stakes as well. That's been keeping you busy as well, I imagine. Yes, and of of course, I was only appointed to this uh, new role on the fifth of um, April. For the last few years, I've served as uh, chair of Parliament's Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Select Committee, which I really enjoyed. But when Kia gave me the opportunity to come back and serve on the front bench, that was something that I leapt at the chance to do that. And as well as working at, at a constituency level, I'm also part of Keir Starmer's uh, Shadow COVID Committee, which meets every uh, morning. Also working uh, on uh, on shadowing Michael Gove, including at, um, at, 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 at you know, now we've left the European Union, which we did in January, shaping our future uh, relationship with the European Union 
and, and pushing the government to make progress on that because the last people last thing people need at the moment is more uncertainty on top of everything we've experienced over the last few months so busy in Westminster busy in the constituency but in um, both cases doing a lot of that work uh, from my um, from my living room rather than uh, um, out and about in West Leeds or uh, in the chamber or in a committee room in the House of Commons. No, absolutely, absolutely. It's been changing times for all of us, that's for sure. You, you mentioned there that you're uh, working on the kind of coronavirus shadow committee. What what can you tell us about that? What's going on there? Well, there's a there's a, a team of us who meet um, every morning to to help ensure that we're on top of all of the latest developments, uh, whether that is on uh, hospital ad- admissions, uh, whether it is on the contact tracing strategy, uh, the testing uh, regime, feeding in uh, our knowledge and experience both from a local level and uh, in terms of the the area that we cover in the shadow cabinet so for example um, i've been doing a lot of work looking at how to use british manufacturers to uh, produce the personal protective equipment the ppe that people mm. need to work on the front line also been looking at some of the government's outsourcing contracts where they've handed over vast amounts of, of taxpayers money to private sector firms uh, when in many cases that work, I believe, and the Labour Party believes, could be much better done uh, at a local level using local expertise. That's really interesting, isn't it? We've done a lot of um, work at the YP over the last few weeks on those local impacts of coronavirus. And it's not just in the kind of, you know, devastating things we're seeing kind of in the economy and in people's health, but it is also in how those local areas can support the recovery is that kind of a key part of what you're working on kind of that recovering coming out of the other side as well yes I, i've also started to, to to do some thinking about some of the lessons we might want to learn from uh, mm. coronavirus so how is I'm it glad someone is <laughs> one of the richest countries uh, in, in the world jerry and yet we went into this crisis with more than a third of people having no savings to fall back on and so We've got a situation as well where if you've got a home with a a garden and you live with people you love, your experience of of lockdown has been very different than if you live on the 10th floor of a block of flats, perhaps with an abusive partner. And so those inequalities of circumstance that already existed and we already knew existed going into this crisis, I think have uh, really come to the fore and people have started thinking much more about the situations in which we live our everyday lives. And it's something that I've been concerned about for for, for some time, really, um, those different experiences of life and the things that matter to us in our lives as well. Mm. So what matters most is our, our family, our, our loved ones, the communities we live in, uh, the work that we do. And I think that those very basic things that have such an impact on our day-to-day lived lives are even more important at a time when, in many ways, our our lives have shrunk to its very bare essentials in the last few months. And how can we build back a better society where more people have a, a, a good place to live, 
um, with with outside space, uh, where they feel safe and secure? How can we ensure that more people have work that affords them dignity and 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 some security, whether that's security of of of, of, of wages and, and hours, uh, or the proper protection that they need to do their um, jobs? And how can we ensure that wherever you live? You have access to, to green space, to clean air, uh, to, for places for your children to, to, to play. All of those things, I think, are the essentials of, of what enables us to live a, a good life. But we've seen through this crisis that too many people don't have access to those basic uh, essentials. And so when we say we need to build back uh, uh, better, I think it's about addressing those, uh, those challenges that people face in their everyday lives and helping to make it better. Because there's been a lot of talk, hasn't there, that this pandemic is kind of the great leveller. And I think as we've gone through it, it's really shown that it isn't, it isn't a great leveller. This hasn't been an uh, equal experience for for everyone for everyone in it. Is that is that what you're hearing from kind of constituents as well? Well, in my constituency of, of West Leeds, we have 26 blocks of high rise flats. Many, many more people live in back to back housing. And that means that the experience of lockdown has often been in quite a confined space with no outdoor space. And especially at a time, remember, when we were only allowed to to go out of the house for half an hour a, a day. You know, if you were stuck in a in a small back to back or if you were stuck in a, in a tower block and, you know, you didn't feel safe using the, the lift because of coronavirus or, or whatever, then it was going to be a really tough time. Very, very different compared to if you lived on the outskirts of Leeds with a, a large house and, 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 and a garden and lots of open space around you. Very different experiences of, of lockdown. If you worked in a supermarket, perhaps doing low paid uh, uh, work, where you still had to go to work every day uh, uh, because you are a, a key worker, but you might be on low pay and you might not at the beginning have access to the proper PPE that you needed to do your job. That's a very different experience for somebody who does an office role where that work was transferred to, to, to your home and you were able to do that knowing that you were safe and, and, and secure doing your job. So I think people have had very different experiences of lockdown. Perhaps one of the, the greatest inequalities as well is the fact that if you are black, you are four times more likely to die from coronavirus compared with if you're white. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of inequalities, I think, have just been revealed in ways that perhaps we were blind to or mm. more blind to going into this crisis. And look, there's lots of ways in which all of us want to go back to the life we knew before coronavirus. But I think we can actually go back to something better in time. And that's yeah. not to underestimate the scale of the challenge we're going to have in the weeks and months ahead, particularly with unemployment uh, rising. But actually, some of the, the worst things we need to put right and some of the most wonderful things in terms of the response to coronavirus we need to build upon. So, as you know, Jerry, I chaired the Joe Cox Commission on Loneliness. Yeah. And we know that loneliness is, is, a, is, a, is a terrible epidemic that exists all around us, in every family, every street, every neighbourhood. And yet it's often un, unspoken of and unrecognised. And one of the things that coronavirus has given us permission to do is to look out for our neighbours, to knock on their doors and say, 
is there any way I can help you? I know you can't see your family at the moment. Uh, you know, can we have a socially distanced cup of tea over the uh, the garden fence? You know, yeah. those sorts of things about community and neighbourliness, I hope that they don't go away as the virus, we hope, fades out. Because actually that's some of the best of who we are as a country and as a society. And uh, we've seen loads of examples of it in uh, in 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 West Yorkshire and in uh, and in Leeds, uh, the number of people volunteering, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I went with Bramley Elderly Action to um, the Morrison Supermarket on the Swinnow uh, in my constituency uh, very early in the morning uh, to do shopping uh, for some of our um, uh, older um, uh, community members who weren't mm. able to get out, and oh, it was just wonderful to see the number of people, some of them volunteering for the first time to support their their neighbours and people in their community who would have been taking too much of a risk by going out to a, to a busy supermarket. And that sort of neighbourliness and looking out for others, I think is something about who we are as a people, as a country. And it's really shown us at our best, I think, during this crisis. And I hope that we don't go back to business as usual on that. So it sounds like a mix between addressing those things that we like you say were maybe blind to beforehand and getting rid of that bad side of things but hanging on to those positives and there are some like you say that have come out of this this kind of neighborly spirit and seeing if we can like you say build back better I mean do you do you get the sense that this is something that's recognized in the government as well or have have they not quite come around to that realization yet do you feel well, look, I, I, I hope they, um, they, they have. I think yeah. that there are, there are, um, some, some things that we can be hopeful uh, about. I think the clap for carers. Yes. That's been just a wonderful thing. And the government very much, you know, embraced that. Mm-hmm. But we can't go back after this crisis to those who we clapped every Thursday evening that they remain underappreciated and undervalued, which is what they were before this crisis, if we're honest, particularly those who work in social care. Half the people who work in our social care sector are not paid a real living wage, and a quarter of people who work in our social care sector are on zero-hour contracts. Now, it would be grossly hypocritical, in my view, to clap them every Thursday evening and then, after this crisis, say, you know, thanks for all you've done, and you can carry on earning not enough to live on, and you mm. can carry on with the insecurity that you faced um, before. I think it is time for a new settlement for our social care uh, system. We've seen uh, this week some announcements of pay um, um, increases for those who work in the public sector. That's very welcome. But if you work in social care, you're not covered by that. And mm. actually, some of those people who have made the greatest sacrifices during this crisis are actually those on the lowest pay. And uh, and, and, and I hope that the government follows up um, on that appreciation that was shown through this, this crisis, through that clapping, uh, and, and not just getting PPE to the front line or ensuring that people can be tested if they work in care homes, which is still not happening on the scale that it should be happening. But actually, ensuring that people on, uh, who work in social care are treated with the dignity and respect that, that, that they deserve and that um, we owe to them, certainly after the sacrifices they've made. And social care reform is something that's really been a can that's been kicked down the road by kind of successive governments, isn't it, you know, over and over again. I think um, it was, oh, it's been just over a year as we speak since... Um, 
Boris Johnson became prime minister. And as I remember, he stood on the doorstep at Downing Street and said that social care reform was kind of top of his list. And I know we've had a you know global pandemic on, there have been other things going on, but surely this pandemic has just underlined how important that social care reform is and how much that needs to kind of be accelerated and worked on. Well, I mean, look, uh, the government have had to deal with unprecedented times in responding to um, coronavirus, and, and any government would have made um, made mistakes a, a, along the way. It does worry me, though, that um, a pandemic was top of the risk register for many years in the lead up to this crisis, but we went into it underprepared. And what I mean by that is... Uh, the government, well, 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, a PPE stockpile was um, created, actually when Labour were in, in office, but that that's not particularly relevant to that. Mm. But instead of keeping that stockpile up to date, that stockpile was allowed to be run down and many things in it had passed their sell-by date when they when they were needed. And I do think when you've got a pandemic at the top of your risk register, and yet you're not ensuring that your PPE supplies are ready for when they're needed, it is a dereliction of duty, because that should have been a, a priority of, of, of the government. And what's the point of having a risk register and monitoring these risks if you don't then ensure that you are well-resourced and ready for when that risk materialises, as it has in a, in a terrible way during the course of, of this crisis. I think also that the the hollowing out of our public services over the last 10 years, whether it's cuts to the NHS or social care or cuts to local authority budgets, and uh, you know, we've seen that very much in Leeds and, and across all of, of Yorkshire, cuts to local authority budgets, mm. make it harder to respond when crises uh, come along. So I do think there are some lessons to be learned from, from this crisis. I, I think, you know, also Boris Johnson became Prime Minister to deliver on the promises that he made during the the, the, the Brexit referendum in, in 2016. And mm. we have now left the European Union, but this year is supposed to be the year that we negotiate our future relationship. And time is running out now. We're more than halfway through the year. And it is really important for businesses. And I was on a call uh, earlier today with representatives from the uh, automotive, the aerospace, the food and drink, the chemicals uh, sector and the pharmaceutical sector, all talking about the uncertainties that their industries still face, crucial industries that employ thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands, millions of people across the country, uh, particularly in northern towns and and cities, um, are not prepared and do not know what our trading relationship is going to be with our nearest neighbours. Now well, it's deja vu, isn't it? What was that, Jerry? It's deja vu, isn't it? Flashing back to kind of before the pandemic when we were having exactly these same discussions. Yes, and just because it's now not the number one concern, because of course coronavirus and the impact that's having on, on all of us trumps everything else. But in the background, this is still bubbling on and it does need to be resolved because one way or another, we need to know how we're going to be trading uh, in just a few months time, what that's going to mean for uh, the way that businesses uh, work. And it needs to be done in a way that protects British jobs because we have lost so many jobs 
during the course of this pandemic in retail in hospitality in manufacturing too and we can't afford to lose any more particularly uh, in the north of england which in terms of jobs has been very badly affected during the course of this crisis yeah absolutely now we said there about it being a year of um, Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, but there's been a uh, milestone in Labour as well, hasn't there? It's been 100, 100 odd days, just as it'll be as past as we release this podcast, since um, Keir Starmer became leader. What what has changed in Labour since then? Well, I, I think that um, to become leader at the time that Keir Starmer became leader of, of, of the Labour Party is incredibly difficult circumstances. Even his acceptance speech had to be pre-recorded from his living room because the usual conference we would have to, to celebrate the election of a new leader wasn't um, possible. But I think two things that I would particularly point to in the last 100 days or so of, of Keir's leadership. First of all, and it should go without saying, but actually, it hasn't gone without saying for the last few years, Kirsten has got a grip of anti-Semitism in our party. And for a party that is a party of equality and equal rights and anti-racism, to have anti-Semitism as a stain on our party was a deep shame for all of us, whatever background and religion or no religion you come from. To have anti-Semitism in your party was a cause of huge shame for for, for, for very many of us. And, and Keir Starmer has got to grips um, with with that. Uh, and that is very much uh, welcome. He's made that his uh, top priority in terms of party uh, reform. But also, I think what people have seen of Keir, particularly at Prime Minister's questions, is somebody who is forensically on top of the detail, who will hold the Prime Minister to account, will ask the challenging questions that the country want answers to, and will put them not just one week, but the next week if we still don't have uh, answers, and has ensured that there has been greater attention to some of the areas where the government have got it wrong, whether that is contact tracing, which is still not operating properly, um, the, the access of pers- to personal protective equipment and clothing on the front line, which the government did get to grips with uh, eventually uh, after Keir Starmer raising it on, on numerous occasions. So I think that approach to leadership, but also the con- constructive way that, that Keir and uh, I hope all of us have approached uh, our, our new jobs and, and new responsibilities, because you know, usually an opposition wants the government to fail. And that's not been the case during the coronavirus because we all want the government to succeed. It's in our national interest uh, for the government to succeed. And the Labour Party wants the government to succeed to protect lives and, and, and livelihoods. And so the way that, that Kia has approached this, not in a political point scoring way, but in a constructive way to ensure that we do save as many lives and protect as many livelihoods as possible. I think that has been welcomed by people and has been the correct um, uh, uh, approach. So we're just 100 days uh, in, uh, but I think that um, that, that Keir's done a, a brilliant job and I think that people have, have, have warmed to his approach uh, and respect uh, him. We've got a long way to go, a long way until the next election, but uh, I, I do think he's got off to a really good start. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that approach that you're talking about is definitely something that's been noticeable, that kind of collegiate collaborative approach. As, I guess, as as an MP who's not, you know, you weren't just elected in December, for example, you've been around for a while. Does, does Labour feel like a different party under Keir than it did under Jeremy Corbyn? 
I very much welcome the change that we've seen um, in approach under under Keir Starmer. I think it's mm-hmm. a, a, the, a professional approach. Uh, it's an approach that's getting uh, results. And uh, Keir Starmer very much, I think, people can see him as a prime minister taking the tough uh, decisions, making the right decisions uh, for our country because he has been focusing on the, 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 the essentials that matter to people, whether it is um, in helping those people uh, on the front line access to testing or, or the PPE or, or calling for support for uh, for, for, for businesses and, and workers who are deeply concerned about their jobs and the future of, of their businesses. So um, I think there has been a big shift under Keir Starmer's leadership. You see it with a, a brand new uh, team that he's got around him, uh, a different focus and emphasis, different way of doing politics, and one that I think much better chimes with the, the country. As I say, you know, Keir Starmer knows more than anybody else that we've got a big mountain to climb as the Labour Party uh, to come back from the devastating election re- um, uh, result we had uh, just um six, seven months ago in December last year, we've got a, a big mountain to climb, but I'm absolutely certain that, that, that Kia can scale that mountain and he can turn around Labour's fortunes and get the Labour Party back into a position where we can compete again to be in government because I've been a Labour Party MP now for, for 10 years and in all of those years we've been in opposition. And I, I've, I've had wins, there's things I've achieved at a local level and a national level but I know, unless Labour in government, the things that I came into politics to deliver for the community that I serve won't be possible. And so I'm determined to help Kia get into Downing Street uh, and to, to have a Labour government again, because we haven't had one for uh, for, for, for 10 years now. And, uh, and, 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 and I hope and I believe that Kia can turn that round. It's going to be an interesting, uh, what, what we all know, four years until the next election, see how that kind of evolves and um see where we are in um in, in a few years time um we we are short on time but just before i let you go rachel I'd just like to pick your brains about a couple of topical issues from this week i mean we've had uh the trade bill coming for parliament again and we've had the russia report out which are two big kind of stories from this week starting with i guess the trade bill what was your what were your thoughts on the uh amendments that we saw this week and the ones that were defeated. I mean, we've got things on food quality going around, haven't we, in the NHS? What were your What were your thoughts? I think that um, you know, if you go back to the the manifesto that the Conservatives stood on uh, mm. just a few months ago, they committed in that and in the political declaration that they signed with the European Union that they were going to protect things like um, workers' rights, um, animal welfare standards, environmental rights, consumer rights, and our national health service. Which again, we went out to 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 to, uh, to celebrate the birthday of the the NHS and and those those clapping again, and. It does feel a little bit disingenuous to go out and clap for the NHS and then not to support an amendment which would have protected the NHS in any future trade deal. Mm. And it does make you question whether this government are really committed to the principles upon which the NHS was founded and on which it's operated through the 72 years of of um, of, of its um existence. So uh, I think it's disappointing that the government voted against those amendments this week, but it's not the first time that the government have voted against amendments that would 
protect British interests uh, in the case of, of trade deals. We saw it as well um, in the Agriculture Bill a few weeks ago. And this is something that really matters actually in Yorkshire because we've got uh, a, a fantastic um, farming uh, industry in, in Yorkshire. And they want to know that their produce, their high quality produce is not going to be undercut by trade deals with America or wherever else that produce uh, their uh, their food to lower animal welfare and lower environmental standards than what we do in the UK. We want to be driving up standards, not uh, cutting corners and being undercut by cheaper goods produced at lower standards. And so I think it's disappointing that the government haven't supported amendments on uh, animal welfare and on the NHS and in a whole range of areas, because I think it goes against the grain of who we are as a country and the things that we value. And we do value our National Health Service more than anything else. And we value uh, our farming uh, sector and, and animal welfare standards. And um, the government not supporting those amendments does beg the question of why not? If they don't plan to undermine animal welfare and if they don't plan to undermine our national health service why not support those amendments when they had the chance Mm -hmm. and what what the government will say and what they have said this week of course is that the nhs would never be up for sale and that the food quality standards would uh, be maintained kind of automatically in uk law but um you're you know the points that you may have been have been put to them this week and it's been a difficult week for them arguably as well with uh, like I mentioned the Russia report it's been um, a worrying time I would say for our security as a country would you agree? I think it's a worrying time for our democracy too Mm. because this availability of, 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 of Russian money and sort of feeling that we're drowning in Russian rubles who buying um, influence does undermine our democracy and our liberties. I, I think that, um, you know, when we're, when we're voting and when we're viewing uh, um, election material, whether it's stuff that comes through the post or stuff we see on Facebook and online, we want to know that, uh, that, that, that it is honest and truthful. But we also want to know that it is not funded by foreign influences. Uh, and so I do think that the government have sort of turned a blind eye, you know, perhaps because they've received so much money over the last decade, millions of pounds of, mm. of funding from uh, from from Russian sources, uh, without, or, or, you know, doing, I think, the, the due checks on, on where that um, comes from. And I think this Russian report has exposed the the amount of, of, of Russian influence and Russian money coming into our political system. We've seen it in the US. Uh, we're now seeing it in the UK. And, and I hope that we um, we take out this big money from British politics because I think it can only undermine it. I wonder if we see it on both sides as well, though, because we also had during the week the, um, the uh, leaked documents that were used by Jeremy Corbyn during the election, wasn't it, to suggest the NHS might be on the table, that they were illicitly uh, obtained by Russia. So it does seem like the kind of, you know, influences in all sectors. It's not it's not just one side, is it? 
And I think it was good to see, I think it was Lisa Nandy, Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary, on the television uh, just last week saying that she wouldn't use uh, materials that were uh, were, were uh, ill-gotten uh, mm-hmm. for election campaigning. And, and I, think that's, uh, I think that's the right response. And I think that all parties need to sign up to that. Absolutely. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on Pods and Country. It's been a pleasure to catch up. Really great to talk to you, Jerry. Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, Jerry Scott, and this episode was edited by Dave Clay. You can find this podcast wherever you usually find your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google. Just make sure you leave us a review, share and tell your friends. We've also got some exciting news at Pod's Own Country. Over the summer, we will be going weekly, so you can get your favourite digest of all Yorkshire's political news in your feed every week. Speak to you soon. In a world where businesses can struggle with cash flow, come under attack from admin and lose track of payments, invoices, and performance. One business and accounting software solution can help you find it all. Enterprise, the invoicing, accounting, and business software that saves the day from admin. Get paid in a flash and take control of your day. Start using now for free for life. Visit enterprise.com.